Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Talladega, Alabama. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples in Talladega and around the world. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, will you join me in turning to the book of Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1 this morning, we'll be looking at verse 16. Once you have it, if you are able, will you stand with me in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the treasure that it is. We thank you for the ways that it instructs us and challenges us and encourages us. We thank you that it is your living word that indeed transforms us. So Father, this morning as we gather together and and arrive at the time in our worship service when we hear from you through your word and through its preaching, we pray now that you would speak. Father, I pray that you would empty me now of my own words and fill my mouth with your words for your people. We have gathered to hear from you. We need to hear from you. So would you now speak? Even in this passage, as we study it and as we have just read it, we see and know that while my words are insufficient, your word is all sufficient. It is powerful. It is transformative. So it is our prayer that you would speak. As you speak, Father, give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, and give us hearts to obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let me start with a confession. Um, As I was studying through my notes yesterday, preparing, um, you know, sort of putting finishing touches on things for this morning, I was tempted, tempted to divide verse 16 in half. But uh, if you notice on the the Bible in in front here, we still haven't turned the page, and we've been in Romans for months now. Uh, We're going to be here long enough. So we're going to try to make it all the way through verse 16, even though I thought about dividing it in half. We'll try to make it through the whole, you know, one verse in our time together this morning. If you remember and if you've been with us for our study of the book of Romans thus far, you will recognize that in the last several passages, the Apostle Paul has been describing his urgent desire to get to Rome. And last week we talked about how we wanted to get to Rome in order to be with the Roman church, to preach the gospel to them, and to preach the gospel alongside them both to see the, the power of the gospel at work in their sanctification, but also to stand side by side with them as they went out into their city and preached the gospel to the lost and watch as the gospel transformed lives to save sinners. And here he describes for us his confidence in the gospel message because it is the very power of God unto salvation. He describes for us clearly why this message of the gospel is so worthy of him preaching it to the church there in Rome as well as alongside the church there 
in Rome. And as we talked about last week, just as it ought to be our desire to do that same kind of gospel ministry with one another and toward one another, it it should also be our desire that we would be unashamed of the gospel. That as we consider what it means to preach it to one another for each other's sanctification and with one another for the sake of seeing people in our city come to faith in Christ, that we would be unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Indeed, that we would be determined to preach it to our neighbors and the nations because we know that this gospel message is the very power of God effective for salvation for those who will believe. Now you'll notice as we walk through verse 16 and next week in verse 17 as well that these two verses build phrase by phrase. One phrase building upon the previous one and so on and so forth as Paul develops his argument phrase by phrase. This is the writing style he's going to use really for the rest of the letter. But we're most introduced to it or first introduced to it with real clarity beginning here in verses 16 and 17. So that's how we're going to look at the passage this morning. Just phrase by phrase. That'll serve as our outline. We've got about four key phrases in verse 16, and those four phrases will be our four main points this morning, beginning with the first phrase, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul begins with that declaration. It seems a fairly simple declaration, and yet it is a profound declaration nonetheless. That is that he will be willing and even bold to preach the gospel to the Roman church and alongside the Roman church, as we saw in the previous passage, as he has expressed his desire to do so. To be ashamed would have been to be fearful, maybe even embarrassed, or to have some semblance of concern that would have caused him to keep silent and to not preach the message. Now, of course, your minds probably go quickly to the same passage that my mind went to, and that is the warning from Jesus himself about what it is to be ashamed in that way uh, of him and of the gospel. In Mark 8, 38, Jesus himself said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now we're going to talk in a few moments about our proclivity to be ashamed and what a real temptation this is, though we would like for it not to be. And, and I think Jesus summarizes why uh, that temptation overtakes us sometimes and where some of that temptation comes from, even as he describes the generation uh, that was all around him in Mark 8 uh, and that has not gotten any better since then. He says, uh, in this adulterous and sinful generation, that is a generation that denies God, that seeks after other things or seeks after self in the place of God, spiritual adultery, as it were, and a generation characterized by sin. You and I might think, well, you know, when Jesus said, don't be ashamed of me or of this message, and when Paul said, I'm not ashamed of this message, the cultural climate around them wasn't as bad as it is for us. And that's simply not the case. That was the case in Mark 8. That's the case in Romans 1. Things weren't good then. They aren't good now. The generation around you is just as sinful and spiritually adulterous, but it was back then too, in the first century. And in the midst of that context, Jesus says, do not be ashamed. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of this gospel message. But I want you to notice something, even when Paul says, for I am not ashamed. He states a negative almost as a positive. 
I know that sounds a little weird, but we're going to be doing a lot of grammar today. So if that sounds a little weird uh, and, and you're not you know, as excited about grammar as I normally get, it's okay. Just hang on. Uh, let's walk through this together. Even as he says, not ashamed, and even in the Greek when it's uh, the, the word ashamed then negated, uh, he's not stating it so much as a negative that would be defending his proclivity to shame. Instead, he's, he's stating unequivocally, unequivocally that he is un ashamed, stating a negative almost as a positive. The Apostle Paul isn't standing back and, and trying to give himself a pep talk about, be, about not being so ashamed, as if his natural response would have been, well, I, I'm ashamed, but I'm going to sort of talk myself out of that, or I know that you guys are ashamed, but, but let's sort of give ourselves a pep talk so that we won't be ashamed anymore. No, he's using a negative to state a positive, clearly unashamed refusing to shrink back from the message. He's not saying, I'm tempted to shrink back from the message, but, but I'm going to try not to. He's saying, I am not ashamed. I will not shrink back from the message. I will not cower from the ministry work that needs to be done. Paul's not ashamed to preach to any people, in any place, in any context, in any circumstance, nor under any threat of persecution. He is resolved and unashamed of this gospel message. And that needs to be us as well. Not shrinking back, not cowering, no embarrassment about the message and no fear of the task. Resolvedly unashamed, with absolute confidence, not in ourselves, not in our ability to carry out this mission, not in our ability to speak it well, but instead in the message itself, which is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel which Paul says he's unashamed about. The word gospel means good news. You may be well aware of that. And so what kind of good news is this that Paul is so unashamed to preach? Well, it is the good news that Jesus is the Son of God. And that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came into this world, lived a perfectly sinless life in perfect fulfillment of God's law and in perfect fulfillment of God's standard of righteousness. And though he was the only one in human history not to deserve to die because he had no sin, still he went to a cross and there died. That he died there as your substitute taking upon himself the wrath of God that he did not deserve because he was the Holy One, the Sinless One, the Righteous One. And yet there he died as the punishment for sin, not his own, but yours. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later he rose to life to set you and me free from sin, death, hell, and the grave. The Gospel is the is the good news that salvation is available because a Savior has come. And it is available as a free gift to all who will cease to trust in their own works, instead repent of their sins and trust in the completed work of Jesus for their salvation as a free gift of God's grace given freely to them. Friends, there is no reason to be ashamed of that message. There is no message better than that message. There is no news, if you will grant me the privilege, gooder than that good news. And so what is there to be ashamed of? 
There is this message that though you and I were helpless and hopeless in our sin, God took on flesh to rescue you and to rescue me from our sin and from its consequences. Paul says, I'm not, af- I'm, I'm not afraid and I'm not ashamed to preach that message. I want to preach that message to you because it will transform your lives, Christian, as you are sanctified by that message. And it will transform the lives of those who are still lost in Rome as it brings them from death to life. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, the Apostle Paul spells out the gospel in this simple yet profound way. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is that gospel? What is that good news that is so powerful to bring dead sinners to life and to sanctify believers? For I delivered to you, Paul continues, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, brothers and sisters, friends, it is easy to say I'm not ashamed of that message. It is awfully good news. What is there to be ashamed of? And we would be stating truth. But before leaving this point too quickly and sort of giving ourselves a pat on the back for being unashamed of the gospel, let me warn you again that it is far easier than you may think to be ashamed of the gospel. And to Paul's point, again, not stating the negative so much as a negative, as stating the negative as a positive, it is rather difficult, more difficult than you and I think, to be resolvedly unashamed of the gospel in this sinful and spiritually adulterous generation. You and I are tempted either to be ashamed or to maybe be a little less unashamed of the gospel, to sort of shrink back from it, to cower away from the kingdom work of advancing the kingdom by the gospel, by avoiding its preaching altogether, or by making it more palatable to the culture to which we preach it. Let me state that again. You prove to be less unashamed than you want to give yourself credit for, or more ashamed than you want to think you are of the gospel, when you either shrink back from telling that good news to someone else for fear of their response or fear of the consequences, or you say, well, if I preach that message that way, they're not going to like it. But if I take this part away or add this thing in or twist it just a little, It'll make it far more palatable to the culture around me, and I'll preach that message. Either of these responses is to be ashamed of the gospel. So if you and I are decidedly silent, we have succumbed to this temptation. and We have proven, in fact, that we are ashamed, even as much as we want to tell ourselves that we're not. Likewise, if you and I alter the message, as so many in our day will do, we have just as much succumbed to this temptation and been ashamed of the gospel. Now it's easy to do. The gospel will sound like foolishness and absurdity to the world. We're warned about this in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Lost people, still dead in their sin, 
still blinded by the prince of the power of the air, still enslaved in their sin, see this message as foolishness. They see your message as a fairy tale, as silliness. It's not even worth repeating. It's foolishness. But to you who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul continues in the same vein. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. People who are spiritually dead won't like this message. It won't make sense to them. They'll think it's silly and absurd. And if you're not careful, you will be tempted to do one of two things. Maybe even both. To either not preach that message because it sounds like foolishness to people and you don't want to be called a fool. Or you'll change it just a little. You'll alter it just a little so that they'll think you less foolish. To do either is to be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel will anger other people. It'll sound like foolishness to some, but it'll simply stir up anger in other people who don't want to be confronted with the truth about their sin. We'll see more of this in Romans 8 and verse 7, but I'll read it to you now. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed, it cannot. The natural person, still dead in his sin, that mind that is set on the flesh, isn't just passively ignoring the things of God. He is angry about them. Because the truth of the gospel calls him away from the fleshly things he so desires, and he will fight with everything that he is to keep pursuing the lusts of the flesh. And so there will be some who will be angry at you. And again, your temptation is going to be to be ashamed of the gospel. And it may take one or two of of one of these two forms. Either you're just not going to want to tell people the gospel because you're afraid they're going to get angry at you for calling them sinners. And they'll yell at you something about, you know, judge not lest you be judged like it's the only Bible verse they know. Or, you'll alter the message. Brothers and sisters, you and I may not think that this is all that tempting, but you don't have to look far amongst professing Christians and even professing Christian preachers to find plenty who will give you a form of the gospel without a requirement for repentance of sin. Without a requirement that there be a turning from sin that accompanies genuine faith, without even sometimes wanting to talk about sin for fear that it will anger people. But if you and I either back down from the call and commission to preach the gospel, or we preach some kind of gospel that doesn't call people to repentance, we have been ashamed of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, can I I take that one just one step further and remind you of the eternal consequences of altering the gospel like that? 
Jesus tells the parable of the sower. We reference it often. And in that parable of the sower is one kind of seed that falls among ground that is filled with thorns and weeds. Do you remember what Jesus says happens there? It springs up. It looks like it's good and healthy, but eventually the weeds and the thorns choke it out. And Jesus says that that is the profession of faith that appears to be genuine, but there is no repentance. And so eventually the cares of the world and of the flesh, those sin issues that are not repented of, choke out a false profession of the gospel and it proves not to be true. Here's what you do when you lead someone to believe a gospel that is a twisted form of the gospel because you've been unashamed or you've been ashamed rather fearful that they might be angry if you told them that they were sinners in need of a savior. So you altered the message just a little bit so as not to make them angry by telling them that they're sinners and you've let them be that kind of soil and think You've let them think that they have eternal security without any form of repentance. And you've preached to them a gospel that invites the thorns and the weeds to choke out a false profession of faith. For others, the gospel will simply make them uncomfortable to deal with matters of eternity that they'd rather not think about. And so again, you'll say, well, if nobody really wants to hear about it, I guess I just won't talk about it. Or... I'll alter this gospel message to make it not so much about the consequences of sin being eternal condemnation in hell and the only hope of salvation and being united with God for all of eternity is to believe in Jesus Christ, repent and turn from your sins and have faith in him. I won't talk about any of that. Instead, since since the people I'm talking to, trying to talk to about the gospel are not concerned with matters of eternity, they're only concerned with how well things are going here on earth, I'll just preach to them a gospel that promises them all good things on earth and I'll leave out the eternal implications. I'll just tell them that Jesus wants them to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in this life. That Jesus' greatest desire is that, I'm going to get myself in trouble, they would have their best life now rather than for eternity. And I will prove to be ashamed of the gospel. Others will be angered because of the exclusivity of the gospel. So you'll either refuse to tell people or you'll alter it a little bit. This one is decidedly common as well in our day and age, in our culture. That you would preach the gospel but then say, listen, it, it, it's, it's worked for me, it's good for me, but you know, if, if your truth is good for you, that's fine too. That surely God is a loving God and there must be many ways to him. You'll twist the gospel just not to make people angry because the worst thing in this day and age that you could possibly tell someone is that they're wrong and and their way isn't uh, isn't the right way, that there's one and only one way to fellowship with God and forgiveness of sins. You couldn't say something that our culture would deem more blasphemous than that. But if you and I alter the gospel, shift the gospel, twist the gospel just a little bit to make it sound like, well, any old way will do. The gospel works for me. I don't know. So maybe something else will work for you. And we've been ashamed of the gospel. Don't stay silent. Don't change or alter the gospel because you're ashamed of any of these things. Because none of these are enough reason to be ashamed, either to be silent about the message or to twist the message when the message is what it is. When the message is this good, 
You don't change it for anything. And when the message is this good, you don't keep silent for anything. There is no amount of persecution, no amount of pressure, no amount of anger, no amount of cultural disdain that could ever come your way that would overshadow and overwhelm how good this message is. That that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. There's no message, there's no amount of cultural pressure that could make that message any less worthy of our preaching it. So don't stop and don't change it. This leads us into the second phrase. Why is Paul unashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation. Why not be silent? Why not twist the message? Because this message is the very power of God to save sinners. This message, not the message you've twisted, Not the message you've tried to add things to or subtract things from in order to make it more culturally palatable. This message is the very power of God. We've seen this word power before. In the Greek, the word is dunamis, which most often refers specifically to the ability to do something. It's not abstract power or strength, not in its regular usage. This word is something far more specific. We've talked about before how sometimes our English words just don't quite get it done. This Greek word to talk about power, you know, we use the word power to talk about electricity or really strong people or, you know, the, you know, ability. This word, dunamis, is the ability to bring something to pass, a decided ability to get a thing done. And that's what Paul says the gospel is it is the ability, namely God's ability, to do something. It's not abstract power. It's not abstract strength. That's not what this word most generally means. We get our English word dynamic from this word. It means it's effective in causing change. And here we're talking about eternity-altering life change. This is the specific ability and effectiveness to accomplish something. And in this case, that something is the gospel's ability of God to bring salvation about in the lives of sinners. In other words, this message, this message we preach, this good news is the effective message God has chosen to use to save sinners. And God saves sinners by and through this message. The gospel message is not just power. It is the very power of God. Dunamistheu is the Greek. The gospel isn't just information. It's not abstract. It's not a powerful message in, the, in terms of, you know, that really, it really stirred something in me. No, this is the power of God to bring about salvation in the lives of sinners. Only the power of God can change people's lives in eternities. We've seen that already in Romans. We'll see it a lot more in Romans. Only God's power can do this. Only God's power can bring a dead sinner to life. And here we're told that that power is on display and at work in the message of the gospel. You can't trust in the power of self-improvement to be saved from your sins. You can't trust in the power of any other message to save you from your sins. Only God can raise dead sinners to life, and he does so only through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his son. 
So don't be ashamed of it. Preach it. Don't twist it. Preach it. Don't stay silent about it. Preach it. Because this gospel is the very power of God to save sinners. And so you don't have to be ashamed to preach it. You don't have to be ashamed to preach it because when you preach this message, you aren't trusting in your power to convince anyone of anything or to save anyone from anything. When you preach this message, you're trusting in the very power of God to save sinners. You would have a lot to worry about and a lot to be ashamed of if you had any other message in your back pocket to tell people. If it was your job to go out into this world with some kind of motivational speech that would get, pe get people to rise from spiritual death and walk in spiritual life, and it was up to you to come up with something convincing enough to convince dead sinners to do that, you'd be in real trouble. And you should be ashamed. You've got nothing to offer. I have nothing to offer. That's not the message we preach. The, the message we preach isn't any old message. It isn't a message of self-improvement. It isn't a message of self-help. It isn't a message of any other thing other than it is the message of the Son of God dying on a cross to save us from sins and, and rising to life to give us eternal life. And That message is the power of God for salvation. So don't be ashamed of it. The word salvation that's used here always in Paul's letters refers to spiritual deliverance from sin. And when he uses the word here, he refers to the whole of salvation. That is justification, sanctification, glorification. The gospel is powerful for it all. The gospel is powerful to justify you. That is, the gospel is powerful enough to make you righteous in your standing before God, though you were once condemned as a sinner. The gospel is powerful for your sanctification. That is, it is powerful to daily transform you, to make you a new creation, to conform you into the very image of Christ. By the way, these two reasons are the reasons that Paul says, I, I need to preach the gospel to you when I get there to Rome, there in your church, because it's powerful to sanctify you, and I need to preach the gospel with you out there in Rome to the lost, because the gospel message is likewise powerful to justify sinners, to save them from their sins. And the gospel is powerful for your glorification. That is, it is powerful to seal you and to bring to completion the saving and sanctifying work of God so that you will spend eternity with God if you have genuinely believed in this message, in his very presence, in perfect fellowship with him. The gospel is, in other words, the power of God to save you from sin's condemnation, from sin's control, and from sin's consequences. All of it. No other message can do that. No other message can save you from condemnation. None. No message of try harder to do better and maybe God will see you as good enough. No message of try to do more good than you do bad so that God will weigh out your works and you'll be okay. No, only the gospel can save you from condemnation. Only the gospel can save you from sin's control. No message of self-help or self-improvement ever talked anyone out of succumbing to the power and influence of the flesh. But the gospel transforms lives in precisely that way. And no other message can save you from sin's consequence. No other message can give you any hope of eternity spent anywhere other than hell except this message that tells you how you can be set free and have eternal fellowship with God in his very presence. 
I want to draw your attention to the little word for. The word translated for in this verse is also important. It's easy to skip over, but it's really, really key. Because again, the nuance is important in our understanding. In the Greek, the word is ace. If we wanted to transliterate it into English, it's E-I-S. That word is not just any old preposition like our word for. Again, our, our word for doesn't quite get it done. In the Greek, this, this little word, ace, always points to a result, or most often points to a result. When, when this word is used, sometimes it's translated to or unto, because it expects a result to happen at the end of the phrase. And that's precisely how, how and why the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes it this way. We might translate it, it is the power of God, and some of your translations may have it this way, it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God that expects a result, because when the power of God is at work to save, he saves. The result is expected. It's expected by that little word because this message is the very power of God to produce salvation as the result. It is, as we might say, efficacious for the purpose. It's powerful to bring about the result of sinners once lost now being saved. The preaching of the gospel, listen to me very carefully. The preaching of the gospel doesn't just create the possibility of salvation. The preaching of the gospel affects salvation. It causes it. Because the gospel is God's powerful and chosen method and message of salvation. Sometimes we think of it this way, that when someone preaches the gospel, the chance is just sort of hung out there for someone to be saved. But that's not how God uses the gospel. And Paul says he believes in, 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 and is not ashamed of the power of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. He says, I don't just preach the gospel and hang it out there hoping for the best. I preach the gospel knowing and trusting that this is the very power of God at work to save sinners and that that gospel message doesn't just make salvation possible. That gospel message is powerful enough to do it, to save sinners to transform their hearts and minds and lives. That message is powerful to do it. But only, which leads us to the next phrase, only for those who will believe. That's the third phrase we find, key in this verse, to everyone who believes. I want you to, to focus on a couple of things here. First, I want you to, to note the promise then I want to talk to us about the reason for confidence in that promise. So we're going to look at this phrase, and then we're going to look at how it's anchored back to the previous phrases. Here's the promise. Everyone who believes in this powerful gospel will be saved. It's okay to get excited about that. If you've believed in this gospel, it is powerful to save you. And if you have believed in this gospel genuinely with true, real faith and repentance of your sins, you are saved. You are saved from sin's consequences, from sin's control. You are saved from your sins. No one who has ever truly believed in the gospel, truly believed, no one's ever truly believed in the gospel and not been saved. 
No one has ever truly believed in the gospel, repented of their sins, and trusted in this gospel message for salvation and been turned down. It doesn't happen. Nor has anyone ever been out of reach of this good news. No sinner is too far gone. This message, this gospel message about Jesus Christ going to a cross in the place of sinners and rising again from the dead so that we could have life is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. But you must believe. You must believe the message. You must trust it by faith in order to be saved from your sins. Belief is trust its reliance, its dependence upon the gospel and upon the power of God to save. To believe is to put one's faith and trust in the God who saves. It is to put one's belief and trust in the Savior that is Jesus. And it is to put one's belief and trust in the way that God has made salvation possible through the person and work of Jesus as spelled out in this gospel. To believe is to lean upon trust with everything that you are and to stake your life and eternity on the power of this message. So you must believe in order to be saved. You cannot be saved by your ethnicity. You cannot be saved by your good works. You cannot be saved by your sense of morality. You cannot be saved by your church membership. And Paul is going to address each of these arguments and more later in the letter. Justification, we understand here from the outset, comes only by faith, only by belief in the gospel. There is no other hope of your salvation but to believe. Now, why is that? And again, here's where we have to note that phrase builds upon phrase, which builds upon phrase. The effectiveness of the gospel and of belief in the gospel for salvation rests not in the power of my belief, This phrase doesn't stand on its own. This phrase builds from the previous two. The reason you can have confidence in this promise that everyone who believes will be saved is that that promise doesn't find its power in my belief. It finds its power in the power of God, in the dunamis theu that we talked about. The Christian faith is not faith in belief. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in the power of God to save us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why the guarantee. Because this phrase points back to the previous one. Everyone who believes will be saved because the gospel is not the power of you deciding to be saved. The gospel is the power of God to rescue you from sin. Sometimes we think about the Christian faith as little more than belief in belief or faith in faith as if somehow saying some magic faithful words does the trick. That's not belief. Belief isn't the right word said in the right order in the right part of the room. Belief is clinging to the promise of God and the power of God, which is sufficient for salvation. It is God's power that saves us. And that confirms this guarantee of salvation to all who believe. Because belief isn't trust in belief. It's trust in the God who saves. It's trust in His power at work for my salvation that carries this guarantee upon which we rely and depend in this phrase. You and I, listen carefully. You and I do not coerce God into saving us by believing. 
That's not what we mean by belief. God is just up there in heaven somewhere. He's just sort of extended the offer. And that when you believe, God goes, oh yeah, you can get in. You said the right words in the right order in the right part of the room, so you're fine. That's not belief. Belief is trusting in God's power to save you. It's not coercing God into saving us by believing. It's trusting him to save us. That's what we're believing in. We're believing in him. I love the way that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 puts it. It's likely a very familiar passage to many of you. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you were to pick this verse apart, phrase by phrase, kind of like we're doing here in Romans 1.16, you would leave yourself asking a question. What's this? This is not of your own doing. You've got to find what we like to call in, in grammar. If you like grammar like I do, you know what word we're looking for. We're looking for what's called an antecedent to that pronoun. What, what is this talking about? Well, we've got a couple of options at the beginning of Ephesians 2.89. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is referring to one of those. It has to be grace or faith. So which is it? Well, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God would make grace a little redundant, wouldn't it? Grace is by definition a gift of God, not of your own works and not of your own doing. Could it be faith? Well, yes. In fact, when Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses this to refer to both. It is by grace you have been saved. That's not your own doing. It is by grace you have been saved. That's a gift from God. It is by grace you have been saved. That's not a result of works. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of your own doing. Faith itself is the gift of God, and faith itself is not a result of works. And he means grace through faith, the both of them together. Grace through faith is not your own doing. Grace through faith is the gift of God, and grace through faith is not a result of works. Again, your salvation is not a result of works, including belief as a work. As if, again, somehow belief just means say the magic words in the right part of the room in the right order and God will see that work that you've done by believing and save you. That's not what we're talking about. Belief is faith, it's trust, it's leaning into the rescuing arms of God and trusting in His power and His power alone to save you. Your hope of salvation does not rest in your belief. Your hope of salvation rests in His grace to save. And brothers and sisters, the difference may not feel all that apparent today. But there will be days in your life and there will come a day when you will stand before God's throne where the difference is decidedly different. Your salvation doesn't rest in the hope that you did it right. I've shared with you this story many, many times of one of the most heartbreaking conversations I have ever had. Eleven years in pastoral ministry, 33 years of life, and I have never had a conversation more heartbreaking than the one that I had with a Sunday school teacher at a church I was serving at the time, who said to me, you know, preacher, 
we can't all really know for sure. We just have to hope we got it right. If your belief is just the hope that you got it right, you haven't believed in this gospel. Because belief in this gospel is not the hope that you got it right. It's not the hope that you said the right words. It's not the hope that you said the right words in the right order. And it's not the hope that you talked to the right person about it. It is the absolute confidence that God and God alone has saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And your confidence for salvation doesn't have to rest in a hope that you got it right because it can rest in the absolute assurance that the gospel is the very power of God unto salvation for those who have believed. And if your belief isn't that confident, it's not real belief. But it can be. Not by believing in yourself. Not by believing in your works and not by believing in your words, but by believing in Him and in His work and in His promise. Can I tell you something else really controversial? I've already gotten myself in trouble once by mentioning a book title and so effectively naming names a little earlier. Let me just go ahead and cast down one of the most common illustrations, and this is going to get me in trouble too, but that's okay. Belief is not meeting God halfway. You've probably heard many times the illustration that salvation, grace through faith, is a lot like God in His grace reaching out His hand and just waiting for you in faith to reach up and take it. Can I tell you something? That's a sweet picture. It is a bad illustration of what's happening. Belief is not God's standing there waiting with his hand outreached, just waiting for you to grab his hand and pull yourself up. Belief is you crying for rescue. God is not, as it were, in the boat with hand stretched out, just waiting for you to swim over and take hold and be pulled up into the boat. I've told some of you the story. When I was little, my grandmother took me to swimming lessons at the city pool. She did that for a, a couple of summers, both at this, uh, the city pool where, where I was, you know, as a kid growing up in Georgia as well, uh, as the city pool in, in line, but went to swimming lessons pretty often, and they just weren't taking. I was a little scared to let go of the wall, and so I'd kick, 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 but didn't want to let go of the wall because I was afraid, you know, I'd not float. And so some of you learn to swim the same way. You, can, you already know where this story, story is, is going. My grandfather decided that uh, he, he took me out fishing one day, and we were out there in the middle of the lake, and he asked me, how are swimming lessons going? And I said, well, you know, okay, okay. Well, he knew. He talked to my grandmother. They just weren't taking. It wasn't working. And he said, it, it, it's enough. It's time to learn to swim. And he did what some of your grandfathers or fathers did to you, and he threw me out of the boat. And I learned to swim fast. <laughs> And there he was in, the, you know, in his fishing boat with his hand reached out that whenever I could swim back to him, he'd help me back into the boat. It's a cute story. It's funny. And of course, he wasn't actually going to let me drown. He knew that I could swim and I just needed to learn and it was high time to do it. God is not your grandfather standing in the fishing boat with his arm held out waiting for you to turn around and swim and pull yourself up. God is more like a Coast Guard rescue swimmer 
He has come in the water after you and has come to rescue and to save you. You're drowning. You're not learning to swim on your own. You're not learning to swim back to Him. That's not belief. Belief in the Gospel is turning around frantically, hoping, searching for anyone who can save you as you drown to your death. And God placing His mighty arms around you and pulling you to safety. That's the Gospel. That's the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. That you were hopeless and lost and dead in your trespasses and sins. And God didn't sit up in heaven waiting for you to figure it out and make your way to him by your morality or good works or self-righteousness. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh and came on a rescue mission to this planet and died on a cross in your place and for your sins, consequences, and rose to life in victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave three days later and promises that by the power of that good news, which is the very power of God to save you, you can be saved. Belief is clinging to that message as your only hope of salvation. One final phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I have to admit to you that this is another one of those instances where here in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of information that he doesn't unpack until way later in the book. So I want to talk about this phrase, already understanding that not all of your questions are going to be answered, not yet. But when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he is foreshadowing and forecasting something very important that he's going to talk about later in the book. The Jews were indeed the first to receive the message of salvation. The promises were made to them. The promises were made through their prophets. And the Savior arrived among them as one of them. And Jesus preached among them about the kingdom of God and the need to repent and turn to him and believe and follow after him. So, in a sense, already, it came to them first. But the word first here is proton which refers much to much more than a matter of sequence. It's a matter of priority. There's, there's something pretty weighty here going on. Now, the Jews were not saved by their ethnicity, as we saw in a previous phrase. They, too, were saved by grace through faith alone. And we'll see later in the book that Gentiles are now grafted in. There is what we need to say is a priority of Israel in this message, yet universal access to salvation through this message to Gentiles as well. The children of Israel played and continue to play a prioritized role in the redemption story, a role again that will be more explained and more fully explained in much more detail later in the letter. So hold your questions until then. In fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Son of God was incarnated born of the lineage of David, and died to save sinners not only from the Jewish people, but from among them and from among the whole world, so that all are able in Christ to become spiritual descendants of Abraham and thereby children of the promise. That itself is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as well. As God promised Abraham, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So, We don't have time this morning to unpack all of that, nor do we have all the details that we're going to get later in the letter. But for now, you need to do two things. Number one, 
Rejoice that the gospel is available to you. And secondly, see God's faithfulness and His sovereignty to bring His redemption plan to pass. This was that divine rescue plan we talked about. And the Jewish people play a key role in that divine rescue plan. Those who carry the promise. and Those who brought forth the Messiah as the second person of the Trinity was incarnated from among them. And the gospel there first preached. Rejoice and see God's faithfulness. And we'll talk more about it in however many years it takes us to get to a later chapter. I want to divide you into two categories this morning and invite you to do one of two things depending on which category you're in. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the invitation for you is to believe. Not to say some magic words, not to hope that you said the right words in the right order, but to believe. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To believe that He came into this world and lived a perfect, sinless life that you were not able to live. To believe that He died on a cross that you deserved and there took the wrath of God that you deserved upon Himself and drank down every last drop of that cup of bitter wrath. That having died on that cross in your place, he was buried in a borrowed tomb and three days later rose to life so that you, by repenting of your sins and believing in him, could have eternal life and forgiveness of your sins, clothed now in his perfect righteousness and having been washed clean of your sins by his shed blood. Believe that and so be saved. For the believers in the room, Be unashamed. Don't shrink back or cower from the work that we have to do to preach that gospel message to the world around us, to our neighbors and the nations, nor fall into the deadly temptation of twisting or altering that message to make it more palatable to the culture. The culture will hate it. They always have. They always will. But if you change that message, you preach a different message. This message is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who will believe. So don't shrink back from it, nor from its preaching. Preach this message and invite others to believe that they too may be saved just as you have been. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the gospel. We are thankful that we don't have a message of self-help of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder to do better next time. But we have what is truly good news, that a Savior has come to save us from our sins. And that message that we proclaim and in which we have believed is the very power of God unto salvation for all who will believe it. And we praise you for that. It is our prayer this morning, Father, that any who are not believers under the sound of my voice this morning would, by your grace and by the work of your Holy Spirit, have those spiritual blinders removed from their eyes and so believe in this good news, not trusting in magic words and not trusting in their own works and not trusting in their morality and not trusting in their best attempts to get it right, but trusting in you and you alone for their salvation. 
It is likewise our prayer this morning that every believer under the sound of my voice would be decidedly and resolvedly unashamed to preach that message to our neighbors and the nations who need to believe and so be saved. Make us unashamed as a church and as followers of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.